Well, I'm going to admit something to you that I'm not proud of, and that is I am not an avid reader of fiction. I know that disappoints uh, several of you. Uh, I will say I am going to try uh, because Paul Dixon has uh, suggested, so I'm going to try to read Moby Dick this fall. Um, we'll see. Um, but I'm going to be in Maine, so uh, he said it probably ought to give it a shot. Um, I don't know that that's the first one I ought to tackle, but <laughs> as my son shakes his head, no. Um, the problem is I didn't grow up reading. And any interest my children have, which is a great interest in reading, comes from their mother. Um, I, I readily admit that. I spent most of my time riding my bike uh, or on a court or field um, or in my room with my headphones on uh, listening to music. And so I'm more familiar with pregame warm-ups and musical preludes than I am prologues in literature. From what I understand, uh, prologues are at the beginning of books, <laughs> and they uh, provide information that are pertinent, information that's pertinent to the story. Um, things like backstory and, and character uh, descriptions and any other details that will uh, help the reader understand the story more fully, right? Um, and help, help things as it progresses, right? Sets you up for what, what's to come. A, a good prologue, I'm told, uh, piques the interest of the reader and adds layers to characters. It adds things to the story as a whole and, and again, sets the stage for what's to come. Uh, it can set up conflicts. Uh, it can establish motives. It can even foreshadow the climax. Uh, so... Um, for those of you who read either I'm right or wrong, I'm just going to believe that I'm right. Um, in a way, and I start there uh, because in a way our text tonight in verses 1 to 13 of uh, chapter 22 serves as a prologue for the supper uh, that is going to take place in verses 14 to 20. Um, so this is actually part one much as we did the last couple of weeks around Easter, this is going to be part one of what is a two-part sermon because it's going to set the stage for not only what happens in these next few verses at the Lord's Supper, it's going to set up the betrayal and the arrest and the scourging and, of course, the crucifixion. It sets the stage for, uh, with very important details that are going to help us understand the what and the how and the why of the events that take place or took place, I should say, over the next few hours in the story as well as over the next few days uh, to end the week that we call Passion Week. Uh, so this week and next week we're going to look back and we're going to look ahead and this week as we look back, we're going to look at two things. We're going to look at a secret plan in verses 1 to 6, and then we're going to look at a sovereign plan in verses 7 to 13. And of course, you know as well as I do, and we're going to talk about this, but the secret plan is a part of the sovereign plan. We know that, and we're going to see that, but we're going to keep it separate for the sake of our outline on paper, okay? Uh, so those are our two points. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we begin. Uh, Father, by your Spirit, would you grant power to the preaching of your Word? And grant us the spiritual eyes and ears that we need to appraise and apprehend the truth regarding Christ and His gospel, the truth that is found here in 
Luke 22, and would you awaken our attention and, and convict us where necessary, challenge us, but then as always, refresh us and encourage us, comfort us. I am unfit for this task to which you've called me, so would you empower me tonight by your grace and your spirit that I might do that which you've called me and that it may be of good uh, for you and your church. I pray, Father, these things for the sake of Christ and His church. Uh, amen. So let's begin in verses 1 to 6. Um, Luke immediately in the very first sentence uh, sets the scene with two very important statements. Uh, the first describes the religious calendar, and the second describes the religious climate. As far as the calendar is concerned, we find ourselves somewhere in the spring. It's around the March and April timeframe of our calendar. And the first of three spring feasts is near, right? It's the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which includes the Passover. We're going to come back to that in just a minute. Uh, the climate or the spiritual climate that um, it was at that point in time was extremely volatile. And I say that because it had been building for some time. We've seen this building over time. It's something that started back in chapter 5. Um, we saw that the religious leaders were critiquing and criticizing Christ and the disciples, and it's just been building ever since. They've been, um, it's, it's progressed beyond simply trying to trick Him into doing something or saying something that he shouldn't, to, to say something he shouldn't or to do something that he shouldn't. Um, and it's progressed to the point uh, they're trying to lay their hands on him. They're trying to set, him, set a trap for him. Uh, they're ultimately seeking, we saw in chapter 19, they're seeking to destroy him. They're not mincing words about it. And of course, all to no prevail, or, or not to no avail, I should say. Pressure's been building, kind of like... Um, Magma underneath a volcano. Pressure is building and things are about to blow to the point that they are finally at the point they're seeking how to put him to death. They're actively pursuing this plan. And what motivated those plans, Luke says, was the fear of the people. Right? They're scared to death of how popular Christ has become. Uh, they were the ones that people had looked to. They were the ones that had had influence. And over time, that's beginning to wane. They were the ones that had been held in high esteem. But now they're looking to Christ more than they, uh, the people are looking more to Christ than they are uh, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And so they're basically losing control. But their fear of the people wasn't only motivating uh, their, their plans, it was inhibiting their plans. Philip Ryken puts it this way, Jesus was much too popular for them to do anything to Him in public, and their malice against Him was constrained only by their cowardice in the face of public opinion. So they're afraid of the people, so they, they want to go after Him, but they're afraid of the people, so they don't want to do it in public. They find themselves in a quandary because if they did anything in public at that time, there's so many people in Jerusalem for the Passover. If they do anything, um, they're going to lose control just based on the sheer number. Uh, 
that would be against them. So they've got to be stealthy. They've got to work behind the scenes, and, and they needed help. And they receive it in verse 3. Luke says, Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. Luke says that the religious leaders received this gift that they never would have thought they would have received. They couldn't have imagined it happening so well, or working so much into their favor. Right? Their problem is, is solved. And this gift is that one of Jesus' own disciples has come over to the other side. He's, he's taking their side. He's going to work for them. Someone who would know His coming and going. Someone who would know His schedule. Someone who could even possibly influence Him, him enough to get Him where He needed to be at the best point possible. But Judas wasn't acting alone. He had been possessed by Satan. But we need to be clear about something from the very beginning, and that is this. Jesus, or excuse me, Judas wasn't doing anything that he didn't already want to do. He may have been possessed and oppressed, but he was not only a willing per- participant, he was completely culpable for what he was doing. The devil made me do it was not an excuse that Judas could make. He had left himself open. He was vulnerable to what was taking place. He was vulnerable to the oppression and the possession. And we ask how? Well, there are two possibilities. First, we, we know he may have been disappointed in Jesus, right? He may have felt disappointed because he, he had felt let down. Things had not turned out the way Judas had expected them to turn out. He was expecting something totally different. His, he had an expectation of the Messiah and what the Messiah would do, and that expectation had gone unmet. It's a very common problem. We've mentioned it several times in our study. Even, even today, people don't base their expectations on, on, of Jesus on who He has been uh, described to be or revealed to be in Scripture, their expectations of Him are based upon who they've created in their own minds and in their own imaginations. In other words, they've based their expectations on who they desire Jesus to be rather than on who He really is. And when He fails to meet those expectations, they get angry, not at themselves for having the false expectation, but on Jesus for not fulfilling the expectation that they have. The other thing, or the second thing, would be the fact that he asked for money. And what does that reveal? It reveals that he was motivated by greed. The love of money is a powerful, powerful force. Paul says, a root, writing to Timothy, a root of all that money is a, or the love of money, excuse me, is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving, he says, that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So this lack of contentment can pave the way for a whole host of temptations and sins. And again, we, 
we understand that all too well. Either way, Judas was not dealing with any temptation or any sin that wasn't common to any and everyone. The bottom line is Scripture is very, very clear. James says if we resist the devil, he will flee. Right? That's a promise. So Judas is not someone to feel sorry for. Satan simply found someone who was willing to take part in what he had been wanting to do since the fall. He found someone willing to do and to play a part in what he had been trying to do since, since what he, his temptation of Jesus had derailed back in chapter 4. And having conferred, the Bible says, having conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them, and then having taken the money gladly, they gladly offered it, he gladly received it, Luke says he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of of the crowd. So he's going to do what they needed done. The secret plan's in place. Um, it's a diabolical plan. It's a wicked betrayal. And it's motivated by cowardice, disappointment, and greed. But fortunately, there was not only a secret plan, there was a sovereign plan. Right? That sovereign plan was in place as well. And as I said earlier, this secret plan was a part of that sovereign plan. And we know that, first of all, because of Peter's words in chapter 2. We've referred to this not too uh, far back uh, as he's preaching after Christ's ascension. He says this, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as your, you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. This, is, this secret plan is being used by the Lord. But we also know that this secret plan is a part of the sovereign plan because of the minutest of details that were leading up to leading up to the crucifixion, but leading up to even this supper. Look at verse 7. Luke says, Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. And they said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? And he said to them, Behold, when you've entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a larger, or a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he said, uh, just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Right? Jesus sends John and Peter ahead to alone to secure a place for the Passover. More than likely, the desire was to keep the details from anyone else. Why? Because there's a secret plan in place. 
They're trying to get him alone. This would have been a perfect opportunity, but there were things that had to be done first, right? The fullness of time had not yet come. There were things that Jesus had to do before he would be delivered over, so he keeps this plan to himself, but he told them, notice the detailed instructions, and they're followed perfectly. He tells them, you're going to go into town and you're going to find a man with a jar. There were a countless number of men probably with jars, by the way. But you're going to find this man with a jar, and they found him. This man's going to take you to a house, and they did. They're going to introduce you to the master of that house, and he did. And this master of the house, is you're going to ask him to, to give, a, give a room, and, and he's going to give you a room, and this room's going to be furnished, and the room was furnished. Everything, as he said, was in place. Everything was taking place as he desired it to take place. So in the end, while this secret plan that these cowards have come up with, this diabolical plan that was devised to deliver Christ up, in the midst of all of that, in the midst of the wicked betrayal, Christ never lost control of the situation. He is in control, despite how things might have looked. And finally, we know the secret plan was a part of the sovereign plan due to the timing of all of this that was taking place. And I said we were going to, I mentioned the Passover, and now we're going we're to come to that. Because it's not by accident that all of these things are taking place when they were taking place. It's all quite remarkable, actually. And to understand that, we need to just take a minute to remind ourselves of what the piece of, uh, the feast of Passover was actually commemorating. And I'm not going to give you all of the details that you saw in your preparation for worship. I'm going to hit a, a few of them, but I do encourage you to go back and read from Exodus chapter 12. But we, we need to remember almost 1,500 years prior to this particular Passover that we're looking at in chapter 12, I mean in chapter 22, the Israelites had been in captivity for more than 400 years. And in verse 8 of Exodus 1 we read that there was an oppressive, an oppressive Pharaoh who did not know Joseph that was in charge. And this Pharaoh thought the people of Israel were too many and too mighty, right? We've got another fear of the people, a very common thread, right? The fear of the people that causes this Pharaoh to afflict them with heavy burdens, the Bible says. And in verse 12, it says of Exodus 1, it says, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, meaning the people of Israel, the more, the more they spread abroad, and, and the more the dread of Pharaoh and the others grew. So they, again in Exodus 1, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service. But this wasn't enough for the Pharaoh, so he wants to pile on, and he piles on in the worst way imaginable and says that he's going to kill, or tells them to kill those, in, those under his rule, to kill every son born to the Hebrews and cast them into the Nile. So it's not enough to make them work hard, now they're going to kill their children. Kill their, their sons. Well, in chapter 4 of Exodus, we read that God called of the slavery that, that we're in. And in verse 21, would lead his people out of captivity, out of, 
of the slavery that we're in. And and verse 21 says of chapter 4, the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, I will kill your firstborn son. Language is very important. In terms of Israel being the firstborn son. In the words of Michael Morales, he says that God's threat to Pharaoh's firstborn amounts to just retribution of Egypt's treatment of Israel's sons in the opening chapter, right? Pharaoh says, I'm going to kill your sons. What does God say? I'm going to kill your sons. Well, we're all familiar with the rest of the story, right? God... um, would send nine plagues. Pharaoh's heart would be hardened. He, he's, uh, he refuses to let the Israelites go. And so God would send one final plague, and keeping his promise that every firstborn in the land would die. But this plague was different than the other nine. And again, I want to use the words of Michael Morales. He very clear on the importance of this. He says, for while the other signs, God had made a distinction between Israel and the Egyptians, since the land of Goshen where the uh, Israelites resided remained unaffected, for example, by the frogs and the lice. So there's this, this line where those plagues did not cross. But he says, for for this tenth and final sign, the death of the firstborn son, for them, Israel needed to be redeemed. There wasn't going to be this line in which the plague was not going to cross over. This, This plague was going to hit the entire land. And he says, under the threat of death, the distinction between Egypt and God's people is made not through Israel's exemption but by the provision of a way of salvation for Israel. Apart from the Passover regulation, Israelites would have suffered death. It's very important. And of course, we read of that regulation in chapter 12. What was the regulation? What did he put in place? What was it, what was going to be used to deliver to redeem the people of Israel. We know that the fathers were instructed to take one-year-old lambs. They were to be without spot or blemish, and they were to sacrifice those lambs at twilight. Those lambs served as substitutes. Their death would be in the place of the death of the older son or the oldest son. And of course, we know from this side of the cross that all of this is foreshadowing what's going to take place in three days. For two days. This is on a Thursday. It's going to take place the next day. (laughs) It's foreshadowing what's going to take place the next day. In Paul's words, right, what was going to take place on the cross is Christ, our Passover lamb, would be sacrificed. And in Peter's words, his precious blood, like like a lamb 
without blemish or spot, would ransom us. The fathers were instructed to take the blood, paint it over the lentils and the doorposts. And that blood was the sign by which it served as a sign that God would see and pass over the house. So his passing over, remember, his passing over had nothing to do with them being Jewish. His passing over had everything to do with the blood under which the firstborn and the rest of the household hid. Well, we know the plague actually, well, the lambs after they were sacrificed, they'd be roasted. We're going to talk more about this next week. That's why this is part one. But roast lamb, they would eat it. Um, they would share together in this meal, much like, as if you remember our study of Leviticus and the fellowship offerings, right? They were shared together. Uh, the difference in, in this between this and Leviticus is they, they dressed up to leave. It, it was like they had everything prepared. Their, you know, their sandals were on, they had their, their staffs, and everything was girded up, and they were ready to go at a moment's notice. Well, we know that, of course, that the, plagues, the, the plague actually took place, as God said. And the firstborn, covered by the blood of the lamb, or the lambs, lived. And the firstborn that were not under the blood of the lambs died, were killed. And of course, Pharaoh finally releases the Israelites and tells them to go immediately, thus why they were dressed immediately for action to go. And there are a few things that we need to keep in mind as we think about this and as we make these connections because remember, it was the blood of the Lamb that distinguished unbelievers from believers. Period. And to follow the instructions that God had given them was an act of faith. Right? Believing in what God had said, doing what God had said, it was a sign of faith in Him. And the entire event was a means by which Israel was marked as a nation, and it was also a way of uh, marking them as having been redeemed. Right? It marked them in terms of their redemption from slavery. And then finally, the, the Passover was, of course, to be, it was memorialized. It was like, we're going we're gonna to remember this. We're going to remember this. We're going to commemorate this memorial year after year after year. We're going to do these things year after year after year to remember, as we've just sung, right? Remember. Right? That's what they were doing. That's what they're preparing for. That's what Peter and John have gone in to prepare for to get all of this ready. Again, we'll talk a little bit more specifically about that next week, but they've gone to, to do this to fulfill the law. It's a requirement. Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law. He's going to remember the Passover. And there are also a couple of things that we need to remember. As I was thinking about this, there are a couple of things we also need to remember regarding his birth that will help us. And we need to remember, of course, around his birth, what did Herod seek to do? Kill all of the male children. 
And we know from Matthew, right, it's no accident that Joseph and Mary took Jesus and fled into Egypt. Why? So that the prophecy would be fulfilled. Um, to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Remember that language is very important. Israel was called you know, my, my firstborn son. My, my firstborn son. And, and so we see throughout the Gospels, we see this connection, this, this paralleling of Jesus and Israel as firstborn Right? And, and we see this parallel uh, between Moses and, and Jesus, and we see all that on purpose, and we don't have time to mention all of those things, but the whole point is that this is a new exodus. This is a new exodus, this long-awaited, and I haven't said this in a while, so I thought I would tonight, the long-awaited, much-anticipated Messiah had come to bring about redemption, that the exodus over 1,500 years before had pointed to. This, the, the greatest event up until that point, the greatest event in redemptive history in which Moses led the people out of captivity in Egypt was now being superseded by the greatest event in all of redemptive history, in which Christ, the, the greater Moses, led his people out of a greater exodus, or out of, out of greater slavery, slavery to sin and death, leading them out of their captivity. And the sovereign plan and means meant that the observance of Passover, right, this Passover that they were preparing for would be the last Passover, period. It was here, the new exodus, right, this, this new exodus, this time of full and final redemption, it, it was here, it had come. So there was no longer any need to remember the Passover of the past exodus. It was now time to remember the Lord's Supper because it marked this full and final redemption. Just as the Passover was instituted the night before the original exodus, the Lord's Supper is instituted the night before on the eve of the crucifixion. The sovereign plan was for Judas to betray Christ and hand him over because it was God's sovereign plan for Jesus to be the Passover lamb who died in our place. It would be his blood, the blood of the new covenant that would not only turn away the wrath of God, but would distinguish believers from unbelievers. It would be under His blood that people would be saved. It would be His death and resurrection that would mark His people. His people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. And it would be His blood that would provide the redemption for that people. And it was this supper that was to be observed from that point forward to proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. This plan has been, had been coming to fruition for a very 
very long time. And it had arrived. Listen to these words from Philip Ryken. Jesus was in full control of everything leading up to the crucifixion. It was all a part of God's counter-conspiracy. And Jesus worked it to perfection, not just the little details of preparing the feast, but the whole plan of redemption. He knew what Jesus wanted to do to him and what the devil was trying to do, but he also knew what he was going to do. He was determined, he was as determined, I love this, he was, he was as determined as Satan that he would die. When Jesus was crucified, the religious leaders got what they wanted. Jesus got what he or, I'm sorry, Judas got what he bargained. Only none of them got what they thought they were getting. Jesus knew what his crucifixion would accomplish. He knew that it would be the death of the devil himself and the death of sin for everyone who trusts in him, not to mention the death of death for everyone who believes in the cross and the empty tomb. Thanks be to God for his redemptive plan. Now, in the midst of all that, three things. <laughs> I know, only three. One word of warning, two words of encouragement. First, a word of warning. Yes, we could. We could come up with m many more things than three. We need to take heart uh, the danger of unmet expectations. We need to take heart the danger of believing in a Jesus created in our own image. Absolutely. We need to believe in the danger of the love of money. We need to believe in and consider the danger of always looking at what we don't have rather than on what we do have. Absolutely. We need to consider the danger of unconfessed sin. And the, fail, and the failure to flee temptation. And the failure to resist Satan. Absolutely. No question. But I think we also need to take heart the fact that Judas had been with Jesus from almost the beginning of his ministry. I think we need to consider that Jesus, or excuse me, Judas was a friend of Jesus. He had heard what Jesus had taught in public. He had also heard him teach in private. He had heard other things the general public hadn't. He had seen the miracles. He had even shared the gospel. And he had seen fruit of the gospel. He had seen people respond to the message that he was sharing and coming to Christ. And yet, he sought to betray Jesus for a few silver coins. Brothers and sisters, this has also been a repetitive truth in our study. Our proximity to Jesus doesn't guarantee our devotion to Him or our relationship with Him. If you remember from chapter 13 of, the gospel, of this gospel, Jesus said, just being near Him or having followed Him on the road 
on the way to Jerusalem or having eaten at some of the banquets or having heard Him preached or having uh, outward contact with Him did not secure entrance into the kingdom. Jesus Himself said that entrance into the kingdom only comes through humbly listening to, believing upon, and abiding in Him. You remember, I'm sure from our study of chapter 19, Daryl Bach said, you know, our faithless association to Jesus is no different than outright rebelling against Him. You can be near Him and not believe in Him. In the word of Christ, commentator, Judas serves as a permanent and powerful warning to every member of the church of Christ. There's always the terrible possibility that even among us who apparently live in the closest connection with the Lord, there may be those who are inwardly false and are busily engaged in betraying Him. And the warning is this, we must, in Paul's words, examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith. Are we believing and trusting in Jesus? Are we resting in alone, in Him alone for our salvation, apart from anything and anyone? Are we under His blood? Now the words of encouragement. The first word of encouragement. We have parents in this room, many parents. Some are, well, they're all raising kids in some way, some maybe past and present, but we've got parents in the room who have been faithful to keep the Scriptures and the Gospel before their children. They faithfully bring their children to worship and have made sure their children are in worship regularly consistently, um, parents who have been faithful to train up their children in the way they should go. They've provided and are providing a, a, not only a, a favorable environment, but they're providing that biblical teaching and they've sought to be a godly example to their children. And brothers and sisters, as of right now, some of their children are rejecting Christ for the truth uh, and the truth of the gospel. They're, they're rejecting Him despite every privilege. And I, I want those parents to know, and this is, and, and you may not be that parent right now, but you might be that parent one day, God forbid. <laughs> You might be that parent, but for those parents right now that are struggling with that, I, I want you to know that there are always things that we as parents wish we would have done differently or better. And there, there are things that we absolutely must um, repent of and seek uh, forgiveness for. Right? We're, we're not perfect. But again, if, if that is you tonight, I want you to know that G Judas teaches us, in the words of my brother Chris Miller, the best environment, the best teaching, 
and the ultimate example cannot change the heart. Our only hope is in Christ, period. May you rest in Him. And may all of you parents, from the littlest to the oldest, rest in Him today for the salvation of your children. Secondly, word of encouragement. There are times, I think we all can, we've been there. There, there are times in our lives when it does not look like God or feel that God is for us. There are times in life when uh, it just doesn't, doesn't look like or feel like He's working out His plan for us. Sometimes it feels, quite honestly, like things are out of control. Sometimes it feels like that it's just one thing after another. Sometimes it feels like those things are dovetailing. Sometimes it feels like those things are stacking one upon the other, right? Please know that if God can take the most diabolical plan that involved the most wicked of betrayal and bring about His purposes... He can work out His purposes in your lives and in mine, no matter what obstacles may be present. There is nothing our God cannot do. He is working everything out in our lives as He desires for His glory and our good. It's a promise. He is our rock and our fortress and our deliverer. He is our God and our strong rock. In Him, we can trust. Period. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, by your spirit and grace, would you enable us to receive the word with faith and love? Would you help us to lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives? Bless those who have heard your word preached, and may the seed sown in weakness be raised in power and show forth fruit of righteousness. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.